0: It is so great to see you guys here this Easter weekend. And I realize that I'm not gonna see a lot of you again to Christmas Eve, so let me be the first one to wish you a Merry Christmas. Let me just get that in, okay? But we're glad you're here this weekend. We're gonna celebrate Easter. It is huge. I tell people, it is the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. And that probably explains why when I was just a kid, I don't care how poor we were, and we were poor, we always got new clothes for Easter. And as you can tell, years later, I still like getting something new to wear at Easter. I mean, this, this thing's sick, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. See, and I'm not alone either. I can look at you guys. See, you guys like getting dressed up for Easter too. See, this looks like a real church this weekend. This looks like where a real pastor preaches. And I, I want to commend you on that because, see, you know it's a big time. You know it's a big day. It's a special day. And you're like, man, I want to look special, right? And I get that. By the way, it's not unusual. It's not weird that you want to look nice on Easter. You want to look special. In fact, have you noticed how specialized uh, clothing has become in our culture. I mean, think about it, there's casual, there's business casual. and If that wasn't enough, we had to add in smart casual which makes me think there must be stupid casual, right? right. Then there's formal wear, and th- there's actually clothing, special clothing for anything you wanna do. If you wanna fish, there's special clothes. If you wanna hunt, there's special clothes. If you wanna play golf, there's special clothes. If you wanna be a beekeeper, there's special clothes. If you wanna ride your bike, <laughs> there's special clothes. Even for hot yoga. See, yeah, that's a good idea. Not a lot of us should dress in hot yoga clothes, but you know what? If you have special clothes for everything else, why can't we have some special clothes for Easter? But I, know, I noticed another phenomenon in our culture, our society, when it comes to clothing. I call it the red carpet phenomenon. And and you've seen it if you've ever watched any of the award shows, like the Oscars or the People's Choice or the Grammys. You know, the stars stroll in along the red carpet, you know, and they're waving, the paparazzi, the light bulbs are flashing. And and a reporter will always put a microphone in their face. And what do they ask? them? They don't ask, what are you wearing? They ask, who are you wearing? You know, and the stars, they get all puffed up. Or I'm wearing Versace, I'm wearing Armani, I'm wearing Calvin Klein, maybe if they're from Fuqua, I'm wearing Walmart, you know what I mean? Because that's that's what they got. I live out there, that's what they got. That's nothing wrong with that, right? But this is what I wanna ask you this weekend in the same way. And it sounds like a weird question. I wanna ask you, who are you wearing? And I think by the end of our time together, you'll see why it makes sense. Now, I wanna begin this weekend by looking at a verse that's probably familiar to you if you grew up in church, especially if you went to Sunday school. And even if you don't remember where the verse was found, you will remember the picture that goes with the verse. This is the picture. I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, it's Jesus knocking on the door and and it's the door of a church, but it also means the door of our life. The verse that goes with it is in Revelation chapter three, verse 20. Jesus says this, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And as I said, it's written to a church, but there's also an individual part. He says, if anyone... Anyone, that would be us, that would be individuals. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, now here's the surprise part. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now it's a surprise because let's be honest, a lot of people would expect that to say, if you open the door and you let me into your life, I'm gonna come in and we're gonna have a come to Jesus meeting, right? Or I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna convince you what a lousy, no good, rotten sinner you are. Or if you'll open the door and let me into your life, I'm going to come in and I'm going to take you over and I'm going to make you do all kinds of things you don't want to do. I'm going to make you give some of your money away. I'm going to make you read your Bible, even though you don't understand any of it. I'm going to make you go to church, even though you're bored to death. Those are the things we would expect Jesus to say, but this is amazing. This is the jumping off point for everything I'm going to say over the next few minutes. Jesus says in verse 20, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I'll eat with them. To which we respond, whoa, 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 whoa. Mike, what about the sin part? Nothing here. What about the guilt part? Nothing. Well, What about the money part? Not a word. In other words, Jesus just says, if you ever get up the nerve to open the door of your life and let me come in, we're gonna eat together. It's the most intimate term that John could use when he wrote the book of Revelation. We're just gonna eat. We're just gonna hang out We're just going to chill together, which makes me think the picture should look more like this. This is, this is, to me, that's what the verse is really saying. Now, my point is this, my point is this, and maybe you've never thought about God this way, but this is what I want you to hear this Easter. I want you to know we have a God in heaven. We have a heavenly father who through his son, Jesus Christ, simply desires to have a relationship for each of us. I'm telling you, his priority is not to come into our lives and beat us up. It's not to come into our lives and manipulate us. It's not to come into our lives and change us. Although if we have a relationship with God through Jesus, there are probably some things that are going to change in our lives. It's not Jesus coming in saying, here are 15 things that you need to stop doing right now. And here are 20 new things that you need to start doing. None of that. This is God saying to us, if you will just open the door to your whole life, your marriage, your family, your relationships, your finances, your career, your education, if you will just do that, if you will just let me in, all I want is a relationship. I'm telling you, that's the story of Easter. By the way, let me tell you why this is so important. All of us know what it's like to have God knock on the door of our life. All of us know what it's like, the sense that God is pressing us maybe to do something in our lives or maybe change something in our lives. And I think we all have different things we yell when we sense that God's knocking on the door of our life. Some, Some of you, you may yell back, hey God, you can't come in right now. Why don't you come back when I'm older and life's not so much fun? And that explains a lot of you this week. And I mean, yeah, you're in church, but you're in church. You don't want to be here. You're counting the seconds till I'm finished, right? I mean, you promised your mom you'd come to church. You don't want to disappoint your mom, so you're here. That's cool, that's cool. Some of you, some cute girl from school or, or work asked you to come. You think you may get a date out of it. That's cool. Maybe somebody said, hey, I'll take you out to dinner if you come to, you know, to church. That's cool, but you don't really want to be here because you're young. Life's exciting. God's stuff, that's for old people. That's when you've got no life, the fun's gone. Then you think about having a relationship with God. Others of you would say when God's knocking, God, you can't come in right now because you know what, God, life is great. Money's great, family's great, kids are great, job's great, school's great. God, listen, if things go downhill, I'll call you. Don't call me. My point is this, there's just this natural resistance to let God get involved in our lives. And I think part of it's because of just the fear of the unknown. Part of it's because we're afraid that, we're so so arrogant, we think that we have life wired. We've got it all figured out. And if we let God get involved, he's just gonna mess things up. This is what's interesting. At the same time, there is something inside of all of us. I'm telling you, there's something inside of all of us that longs to be in a relationship where we can be fully known and fully accepted, warts and all. Mark Twain's the one who said, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. Guess what? You have a dark side. Guess what? I have a dark side. And every one of us, we long, we desire to be in a relationship where someone can not only know our good side, but they can know our dark side, and there's no fear of rejection. We want that. By the way, some of you listening, you know what it's like to be fully known. Because you got into a relationship and you felt secure in that relationship. You felt loved in that relationship. You felt accepted in that relationship. And so one day, you know, you got bold and you thought, man, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be transparent. And so you just dumped everything out. You talked about your past, your mistakes, your failures to this person that you're in this relationship. And when you dumped everything out, the person you dumped it out on, they walked out. Like, I can't deal with that. So you know what it's like to be fully known, but you still don't know what it's like to be fully known and fully accepted. But I'm telling you, there is a desire in all of us to have a relationship where we are so loved, we never fear that the one who loves us is ever gonna walk away and abandon us. And I think sometimes we're aware of it, Sometimes we're not even aware of it, but I'm telling you it's there, and it's there because, understand, God created us to be in relationships, and we were specifically created to be in a relationship with God. And if you wonder why, it's because when God created us, he designed us with that need, and he designed it in such a way that he is the only one who can meet that need. And regardless of what you think of the Bible, some of you think it's a myth, some of you think it's just a bunch of made-up stories, regardless of what you think of the Bible, the Bible is really nothing more, listen to me, it's really nothing more than an epic love story where God the creator is the main character. And he created mankind to be in a relationship with him. But as we're gonna see this weekend, mankind broke the trust, mankind destroyed the intimacy and the relationship. And the rest of the Bible after Genesis chapter three is nothing more than God working really, 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 really hard to put that relationship back together again. That's the epic story of the Bible. It is the, it is the perfect story of redemption. It's about God doing everything in his power to restore a relationship with the people he created to be in relationship with. I want to show you where it went so horribly wrong. It's a story of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter one. You don't have to turn there. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. By the way, let me just say this. Some of you think that the story of Adam and Eve is a myth, that it's fake news. That's a big term in our culture these days, right? Fake news, right? And you think it's fake news. You think it's a myth because your freshman year of college, you had a brilliant professor who told you that it's a myth. But let me tell you why I believe that the story of Adam and Eve really happened, okay? I'm pretty simple. I believe it happened because Jesus believed it happened. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus based an argument on Adam and Eve. In Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy that shows us that Jesus and Adam were actually related. So understand, Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people. And since Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, then pulled it off, I'm going to side with him. I am pretty sure your college professor never did that, okay? So I believe that the story of Adam and Eve is true. I know that's too simple for many of you. That's your problem. I was a PE major. I'm not that smart, so it works for me. I'm going to go with the guy who rose from the dead. Now, the story begins, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, understand, this is coming on the heels of God having created everything. Created land and water, the galaxies. He created fish and and animals and bugs. I mean, he's created everything. And then when you get to verse 26, we, us, that would be a reference to the Trinity. Let us make mankind, and I guess a reference to Adam and Eve, in our image. Now, let me ask you a question. What does it mean that God created Adam and Eve in his image? Well, it means he created them to be like him. Well, what was God like? What was his image? Well, he was holy, he was righteous, he was perfect, he was without any sin whatsoever. So understand, when God created Adam and Eve in his image, God clothed them in his holiness. God clothed them in his righteousness. And I'm telling you, it was absolute perfection. I mean, I'm not lying to you. It's kind of like this jacket that I got for Easter. I mean, you talk about perfection. By the way, don't be envious. That's a sin, that's a sin. Come up to me afterwards, I'll tell you where you can get one of these things, right? But when I, when I saw this jacket, Laura and I were just walking through the mall. I'm telling you, it was like the heavens parted. <laughs> and a light shone down. I'm serious, it glowed. It just glowed. And I said, honey, look at that jacket. She said, that is the ugliest jacket I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> I said, uh, no, 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 no. Other than the fact that it looks like something Worry Williams might wear, that, that makes it kind of eh. But other than that, Other than that, I said, honey, that is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. And she's like, you're not getting that jacket. So she went off and started, how about this jacket? I couldn't stop staring, you know? So I slipped it off the hanger and I put it on. I went and stood in front of the mirror and I looked and I said, you complete me. Oh yeah, it was a righteous moment, you know what I'm saying? Men, you understand that if you ever slipped on a perfect jacket, ladies, it's probably shoes for you. Now, let me just say this. Laura does not share my sentiments. That's okay. She just doesn't have great taste like I do. But here's the thing. I ended up with this perfect jacket. In the same way, Adam and Eve had this perfect garment. It was uniquely designed for them. Think about this. They were clothed in God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's perfection. Everything was perfect. Adam was perfect. Eve was perfect. Their relationship was perfect. Their relationship with God was perfect. God even created... A perfect environment called the Garden of Eden. He says, it is here for your enjoyment. Have a blast. Comes with one little warning. Genesis 1, chapter 2, verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Meaning, instantly, you're going to die spiritually. In other words, instantly, this perfect relationship that God had with mankind is going to be severed. But it also meant you're going to begin the process of dying physically. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, da-da-da-da. See, an epic, right? you got to have a villain. Here comes Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized. Now, let me just say this. It probably takes about 45 to 60 seconds to read verses 6 and 7. Probably takes about the same amount of time to act it out. But you got to understand, in that 60-second period of time, everything changed. And Adam and Eve were aware of the fact that everything had changed. What had changed? What had happened in that one minute, that 60-second period of time? I can tell you what happened. In that little period of time, sin, for the first time, infiltrated the bloodstream. Sin entered into the human race. Up until now, incredible purity, incredible innocence. God and mankind existed together in this perfect relationship, but in that moment, everything changed. In other words, Adam and Eve were no longer righteous. They were no longer perfect. In fact, when Adam and Eve, it's like they took a perfect garment, and because of pride, because of greed and shame, Because of deceit, there was hatred. All of a sudden, there's anger and competition. And all of a sudden, there's rebellion. All of a sudden, there's anarchy. And they severed the thread that connected them in a relationship with God. In that moment, intimacy was destroyed. In that moment, everything that God had created that was perfect, they had destroyed. Now, i got to get this thing back on. But let me tell you something. Don't worry, I bought an extra one to keep. It's a seventh jacket I've destroyed this weekend. Now, let me, before you clap, let me tell you why I'm keeping it. A lot of you want me to do your weddings. If I do it, this is what I'm wearing, okay? So, ask at your own risk, okay? Everything that was beautiful was a total mess. Look what it says in verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, translated to English. Literally in the Hebrew it says, why are you where you are? You've never hid from me before. Why are you there? Where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. Uh Uh-oh, and I was afraid. He's never experienced fear before. He says, I was naked, so I hid. He's ashamed, he's never experienced that before. So I understand there was some truth to what Satan said. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they discovered there were all kinds of things that God had been trying to keep them from. But it was because he loved them, it was because he wanted to protect them. He wanted to maintain this intimate relationship with them, but they disobeyed, it doesn't stop there, it gets worse, verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman. That dang woman, you put here with me. I didn't ask for her. I was just hanging out in the garden, mind my own business, swing through the trees with the monkeys. Sharp sticks in my hand, shoelaces untied, not a care in the world, nobody to lecture me. I take a nap, I wake up, bam. Here she is, I did not ask for her. You gave her to me. God. My point is this. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and broke intimacy with God, suddenly God is somebody to hide from. Suddenly God is somebody to be afraid of. Suddenly God is someone to blame. In other words, God is now responsible for all the bad stuff that's happening in their lives. Does that describe you? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, serpent. My point is, nobody's responsible for anything. It's everybody else's fault. Sound familiar, right? But this is what I want you to see. I want you to notice God's response. I mean, is he gonna fry them on the spot? What's he gonna do to them, right? Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In other words, God took an animal. We don't know what kind of animal it was. I don't know, maybe it was the Easter bunny. I don't know, but he took an animal And he kills it right in front of Adam and Eve. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think went through their minds as they were watching God kill this animal? They had never seen blood before. Death was a foreign concept. But God kills this animal. He skins this animal right in front of them. And then he takes the skin of the animal and he covers their nakedness. He covers their sin. He covers their shame. He covers their guilt. In other words, it was as if to say, in order for your sin, your guilt and shame to be covered... In order for your wrongdoing to be atoned for, an innocent third party is going to have to absorb the penalty that's rightfully yours. But understand, it's so much more than that because really, and this is such a key verse in the Bible, this is a foreshadowing. What does that mean? It's like a preview of coming attractions. You know when you go to the movie and you just want to see your movie, but you got to sit through 30 minutes of previews? What do they do? They're teasers. They're telling you, coming out in the fall, coming out around Christmas, this spring, and they give you just enough to let you know that it's going to come out at some point. Something's going to happen at some point. This is a preview of coming attractions. And what right here in in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, this is where God begins his pursuit to reconnect with man. And at this point in the story, God introduces something brand new to mankind. He introduces grace. What is grace? Well, we say grace is getting something you don't deserve. If you didn't earn it, if you don't deserve it, but someone still gives it to you, that's grace. Here is as if God said, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. In fact, I'm going to give you something that I would be totally justified in not giving you. I'm going to clothe you. So once again, God took out his own needle and thread and he began to weave something into the very fabric, the very framework of history, the very framework of our existence. Now looking back, we now know that it was a foreshadowing. It was a preview of the ultimate tailor-made garment that God eventually was gonna make available to all of us. Fast forward to Jesus. We know that he was born in a little village outside of Jerusalem, Bethlehem. We love the story, little baby cuddly, cuddly baby Jesus. We love that, shepherds and wise men, angels. We love that stuff. What we often forget is that was just the beginning. For 33 years, Jesus lived a a sinless life. But every step he took across Palestine, across Judea, Jesus knew that he was one step closer to his ultimate destination for coming. He knew that he was one step closer to the cross. And sure enough, 33, just when he should have been reaching his prime, Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's falsely convicted, he's beaten within an inch of his life, he's nailed to a cross, he hangs there from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. Finally, after six hours, there's a phrase that Jesus uttered. He said, it is finished. Not my life. What I came here to accomplish is finished. I have atoned. I have paid for the sins of the world. In other words, just like this animal in the garden, Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. And when he said it is finished, he was saying the work's been done. The pattern's been cut. Your new clothing's been made. It's complete. It's perfect. It's 100% paid for. It's my righteousness. And all you have to do is slip it on. Let me kind of explain it this way. All of us got dressed today. Unless you're a two or three year old. And you should probably be in Kid City. This is nothing for children. But anyway, nobody forced you to get dressed, right? You got up, you went and you looked in the closet, you picked out your outfit, you put it on. We do it every day. But what we don't realize, when we get dressed, we exchange our nakedness for something that covers us. For something that makes us presentable. In the very same way, the great apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, wrote a little letter to a church in Corinth, a little group of Christians. It's now in the Bible, it's 2 Corinthians. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, he was perfect, he was righteous, he was holy. He made him to be sin for us. He, Jesus took all the sins of the world. That's why on the cross when Jesus said, God, why have you forsaken me? It's because when Jesus took on our sin, the Father had to look away. Why? Because he's perfect, he's righteous, he's holy. He had to look away. He became sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, regardless of how big of a mess we've made of our lives, regardless of how far we are from God, we get to exchange our mess for the righteousness of Jesus. And when we put on his righteousness, here's the cool part. It makes us presentable before God. Now, some of you are thinking, "Well, oh, great, great story, Mike. What does this have to do with Easter? Easter's not about the death of Jesus. It's about the resurrection. I'm glad you asked. Uh, even though there are hundreds of religions in the world, all but four are built on philosophies, not personalities. Only four are built on personalities. Of the four that are built on personalities, understand, Christianity is the only one that claims that its founder is still alive. For example, Judaism. It's the oldest of the four, founded by Abraham. Historians tell us that Abraham died around 1900 BC. Not any historian has ever recorded a time when Abraham, after his death, appeared to any of his followers. That's because he was dead. And if you could find his tomb, it would, it would say occupied. Because when he died, he stayed dead, okay? How about Buddha? Buddha died 43 BC. One historian writes, when Buddha died, he died with that utter passing away in which nothing remains behind. And if you could find his tomb, it would be occupied. Because when Buddha died, he stayed dead. How about Muhammad? Islam was founded on Muhammad and his teachings. Another historian writes, there is no record of Muhammad having existed after his death or ever appearing to his disciples. Muhammad died on June 8, 632 AD and was buried in Medina where his tomb is visited annually by thousands of devout Muslims. And guess what? It's occupied because when he died, he stayed dead. But foundational to the Christian faith is the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. That after he died on the cross, three days later, just as he predicted, he rose from the dead. You say, well, Mike, I don't believe it. Well, I'll tell you, I can make it very simple. All you got to do is go to Israel. Not very big. I stood on Mount Carmel one day. You can see one shore to the next. Jerusalem's a small little area. It wouldn't take you long. All you got to do is find the tomb and the remains of Jesus and Christianity crumbles into dust. It's done. It's history. We can sell this place, and I'll go to the beach every weekend. You know what I'm saying? Right? But no one will ever find it, and I'll tell you why. It was because after three days, he walked out of the tomb. You're like, well, Mike, you sound like you were there. You're so sure. I could have been. I'm that old. I could have been there, but I was busy that day. But let me tell you, let me tell you why I'm so sure. This is the best proof that Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples. Remember, he had 12 disciples, one defected, Judas, betrayed him, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. So now he's down to 11. They never thought Jesus was going to die and come back to life. They thought Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. They were under Roman rule. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome, set up a kingdom. They were going to be a part of his cabinet. That's what they thought. When Jesus died, they were devastated. In their minds, they had believed a hoax. It was a big sham. It was a lie. Three, years of, their, three uh, years of their life was lost. They were never, ever going to get them back. And I'm telling you, those cowards scattered like rats on a sinking ship. Nobody was sitting outside the tomb with a big countdown clock. You know, 72 hours and count. No. Because never for a second did they think he was actually going to come back to life. But if you do your history, and I'm not talking about reading the Bible, history, you will discover that those guys over the next 60 years, every one of them, except one, died for going around teaching that Jesus had died, been buried, and three days he rose again. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia with a sword. Mark died in Egypt. He was drugged by horses through the streets of Alexandria until he died. Luke was hanged in Greece for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, how would that be? How would you like to be the half-brother of Jesus? Jesus never leaves dirty socks on the floor, right? Always perfect, right? James, the half brother of Jesus, by the way, who did not become a follower until after Jesus' death and resurrection. James, the half brother of Jesus, was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. It's about a hundred foot drop. He didn't die, so they beat him to death with a club. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, went to Asia, which we now know as Turkey, and he was flayed to death with a whip. For preaching andrew was crucified after being whipped by seven soldiers hung on for a couple of days until he died thomas was stabbed to death with a spear while preaching about jesus in india jude the half-brother of jesus was killed with arrows when he wouldn't deny that he believed jesus rose from the dead matthias who, the one who took judas's place stoned and beheaded how about paul who wrote most of the new testament tortured and then beheaded by nero John's the only one who wasn't martyred. They tried to kill him. He didn't die, so they, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you die for a hoax? I wouldn't. I mean, I don't care. Even if I was trying to leverage it for my own good, I'm trying to make some money. I might write a book, get a book deal, maybe get on Oprah, you know? But I'm telling you, if they will me in the Colosseum and they're getting ready to light me up or Feed me to the lions. I'm coming clean. I'm singing like a canary. Not a one of these guys ever folded. What changed? What happened in the lives of these guys that they went from cowards to being willing to die for the fact that Jesus Christ was who he said he was? Well, let me tell you something. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they saw. They didn't believe it. But they saw him die. Several of them helped prepare him and put him in the tomb. But a few days later, they saw him walking around Jerusalem. Mm, That's a game changer. And they could not stop talking about the fact that Jesus Christ was the son of God who died, was buried, and three days he came back to life. I'm telling you, the foundation of Christianity isn't that he died. A lot of people have died for what they believe. The foundation is that he came came back to life. And I'm telling you, this is why it was so important. When Jesus walked out of that tomb that first Easter, you know, what he, you know what he was saying to the world? He verified and validated, I am indeed the son of God who can take care of your sins. I'm the one who can pay your debt. And what he says to us this Easter is this, if you let me, I'll take care of your sin. I'll forgive you right now. In fact, I'll forgive you not only of your past sins because now I wanna live in a constant state of forgiveness with you. I'm gonna go ahead and forgive you for all your future sins. On top of that, I'm gonna reconcile you back into the relationship with God that deep down inside, you know you want and need. On top of that is Trey, that beautiful song Trey wrote earlier, I'm gonna restore those stolen years. I'm gonna give you a life you didn't think was possible. And when you die as a cherry on top, you're gonna to get to spend all eternity in a place called heaven with a heavenly father who is head over heels in love with you. That's the story of Easter. It is just an epic love story. In fact, when you think about it, if we go back to the clothing analogy, Easter is really all about the reveal. It's what makes us presentable before God. And all you have to do is simply this. You gotta get to the point in your life where you realize, man, my sin has messed up my life. It's torn, it's ripped up my life. It's separated me from God. I'd like to have a relationship with God, but there's nothing I can do that earn God's favor so I can earn my way back into a relationship with God. So there's only one way, and you have to go to the cross to what Jesus Christ did, and you have to take off that old garment that's been so shredded by sin. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins, and because of his grace, he lets us clothe ourselves in his righteousness. And when we clothe ourselves in his righteousness, when the Father sees us, this is what it says in the book of Romans, God sees us perfect and holy as he sees his very son, Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus. We exchange our mess for his righteousness. And I'm telling you, when you're clothed in Christ, <laughs> that's a sweet fashion statement. It's not gonna get any better, but you gotta make the choice. Just like you chose whether or not to get dressed today. By the way, thank you for making the right choice. <laughs> right? But you gotta choose whether you want it or not. You know what's interesting about a relationship? It's not a relationship if I make you be in a relationship with me. It's only a relationship if both of us want to be in a relationship together. So if you want it, you want it, it's available. Remember the picture we started with? Jesus knocking at the door. He's a gentleman. He's not going to barge in. If you want a relationship, it's what he's been striving for and desiring. But it's up to you. You get to open the door. Let's bow together. How's your life? You made a mess of it? It's not unusual. We, we're pretty good at that. Maybe you just have no direction or sense no purpose, or even though you seem to be successful and have it all together, there's just kind of something missing. You don't know what's missing. Something, something's missing in your life, and maybe there's just that lack of peace. But Easter is about your ability to exchange your life for a new life in Jesus Christ where you can be forgiven, reconciled, purpose eternal life and I'm telling you there is no better offer and if you would like to make that exchange this weekend because it's pretty simple we make it a lot harder than it is I'm going to lead you in a prayer and there's nothing magical about this prayer but if you, if you repeat these words from your heart I'm telling you God will hear you the Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved will be saved that's why you have a Savior and in case you know it don't know it You need saving. Let's be honest. We we can't stop biting our nails. We can't get our finances under control. Sometimes we couldn't save our marriages. What in the world makes us think that we can save ourselves for all eternity? You need saving. And when you realize you need saving, you have a Savior. He's Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you'd like to pray it, I'd encourage you to do so. Just pray it in your heart. God will hear you. Just pray, Dear God, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that he was buried, and I believe that he rose after three days. I believe that he he is the savior of the world, and I receive him right now as my savior. Please accept me into your family, not based on my efforts. Not based on my good deeds, not even based on this prayer, but based on my faith in what you did on my behalf. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for accepting me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, thank you for being with us today. You promised us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you would be there in the midst of them. And Father, I know because it's happened at every campus, at every service this weekend, there are people who've just prayed that prayer to be restored back into a relationship made possible through what Jesus Christ did for them. I pray that you will give them the courage to share that with someone, that they made that decision. Maybe it's the person who invited them this weekend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor who they know is already a follower of Jesus Christ, but someone who can come alongside of them and be an encouragement to them as they begin this journey. And Father, we give you the glory and the credit right now for what you're going to do, not just in their lives, but in all our lives, because we're reminded in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that you take us on as a project, and he who begins a good project in us is faithful to complete it. We thank you for that promise. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you join me as we celebrate all of those that made that decision this weekend? It's been a great, 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 great weekend.